You're listening to HowStreet.com Radio, available online at TalkDigitalNetwork.com. Welcome to HowStreet.com Radio, the online source for market opinions. Here is Jim Goddard. My guest is James Corbett, publisher of the CorbettReport.com and editorial writer for the International Forecaster. He's speaking to us from Japan, where he's worked and lived since 2004. Welcome back to the show, James. Thank you for having me back on. The APEC summit in Vietnam, is this being billed as a big deal? It is, uh, to some extent. It's probably not world-shaking, but there are some things that are being hatched at the APEC conference that could potentially, in the long run, be world-shaking, probably the most notable of which is this story coming out from the uh, Russian TASS news agency right now that Putin said on Wednesday that Moscow supports the idea of setting up a free trade area in Asia and the Pacific. And basically, he went on to point out that in the last uh, few years, Russia's foreign trade uh, with the APEC countries has increased from 23 to 31% of Russia's overall trade, and its exports to APEC countries has increased from 17 to 24% of its overall trade. And he says, we have no intention of stopping there. So I think this is an indication that Russia is taking its Asia trading partners more seriously and looking to the Asia-Pacific region as an important outlet for exports as uh, basically Asia starts to build up, largely with the help, of course, of China and its investment infrastructure, the infrastructure investment that it's doing right now under the Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, I think there's a lot of momentum in the region right now for some sort of trade deal. And of course, the Trans-Pacific partnership was going to be the U.S.-led deal, but uh, as we know, uh, Trump pulled out of that and scuttled it. So now it looks like Russia and others are interested in the idea of some sort of APEC area um, trade, uh, free trade deal that's going to help increase uh, exports among the countries here and basically smooth over the trading process. So I think that's a potentially important development, and we'll have to see how that continues to develop and who picks up on it. Do Russia and China feel that they're taking the place of the U.S. in Pacific trade now? Whether or not they feel it, I think there is that vacuum. And, of course, uh, political nature certainly abhors the vacuum. So I think everybody's looking to step up to the plate and perhaps potentially become a leader of some some new initiative here. And China has been looked to since basically since the TPP pullout was announced as potentially filling that void. But uh, I think, you know, Russia, Japan, other players in the region definitely have their own intentions and ideas, and we'll see if they are able to cooperate and come together or not. Because let's keep in mind, Russia and China aren't, and certainly haven't been exactly best buddies for uh, quite a while. And uh, they have been thrust into each other's arms because of the increasing um, economic and other forms of encirclement by U.S. and NATO allies. And so I think there's a marriage of convenience going on here, but I still think Moscow and Beijing have their own foreign policy and, uh, and trade goals. And there may be some overlapping goals there, but not necessarily 100% congruent. So I think perhaps Putin's vision might not be 100% in accord with uh, President Xi Jinping's vision, and we'll see who who ultimately uh, spearheads this. Is there a lot of pressure to get the Trans-Pacific Partnership signed in Vietnam? Uh, I don't believe that is on the table. Um, I know that Japan has been floating the idea of basically going with the TPP minus U.S., um, but I don't know how much traction that idea really has among the other nations. Uh, and it really is an open question as to what, whether that would be anything more than really a symbolic thing, because of course the United States really was the heart of that deal. I think everyone's looking for a new 
feel entirely as as a new way of kind of uh, wiping the slate clean that could potentially include a country like China, which, of course, was excluded from the Trans-Pacific Partnership arrangement. So we'll see. Um, I, I think they're they're looking more for a replacement than uh, just basically uh, signing the old deal without the U.S. How was Trump's visit to Japan perceived? Well, I think the image that probably stands out for most people, of course, is Trump dumping his uh, fish food into the koi pond. But uh, on a more serious note, I think uh, there's been some interesting rhetoric surrounding this. Uh, Ian Bremmer saying Trump's visit to Japan puts Tokyo at the center of geopolitics. That might be a bit overblown, but at any rate, I think it does show that the Asia-Pacific region continues to be uh, extremely important and will only continue to be even more important as China grows in power and influence and the U.S. is looking in various ways to counter that. So I think uh, Japan is a, uh, clearly a key important ally for the U.S. in the region, as it has been since the end of the Second World War. And so, of course, North Korea issue and the China issue were very much front and center. But perhaps perhaps even more importantly were the economic issues that were being discussed. And uh, the diplomat has a post up, in Japan, Trump and Abe offer alternative to China's Belt and Road. I know you and I have discussed before this Belt and Road initiative that the Chinese government is pushing right now up to a trillion dollars in infrastructure and other forms of investment that they are pushing in the Eurasia region um, and even beyond that as a way of connecting up all their trading partners or potential trade- trading partners across Eurasia and around the uh, South China Sea and other areas. Uh, and in order to counter that, there has been this idea that's been floated in recent months uh, by Tillerson and others in the U.S. State Department orbit of an Indo-Pacific shift where India may become more of an important partner with the U.S. in in some sort of counter or alternative or roadblock to that Belt and Road Initiative. And that was apparently at least tangentially part of the discussions between Trump and Abe in Trump's visit to Japan. And some deals have been actually signed. Uh, The Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which is the U.S. government's development uh, finance agency, just inked a deal with its Japanese partners to, quote, offer high-quality United States-Japan infrastructure investment alternatives in the Indo-Pacific region, which is the kind of flowery language you often find in deals like that. We'll see what actually eventuates from it, but at any rate, it does show a willingness to uh, to create some sort of alternative to that Belt and Road Initiative, and uh, quite quite uh, notably putting India as a, an important part of that. And some other energy infra- infrastructure investment deals were um, signed, including a Japan-United States Strategic Energy Partnership, which is going to uh, apparently promote universal access to affordable and reliable energy in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. So again, well, it remains to be seen what kinds of investments, how much, and in what ways, but it certainly does seem to be a an alternative to the uh, Chinese-led uh, infrastructure investment that's going on right now, um, and we'll we'll have to see. I think this is the beginning of a sort of investment investment war, if you can call it that, uh, between the two competing models of the Chinese-led Asia-Pacific and potentially a, a Japanese-led Indo-Pacific. I, I'm not sure exactly what the vision will end up being, but there is some sort of alternative that's being constructed here. Are they trying to keep things competitive or just uh, alternatives if other set deals fall apart? I think this has to be seen in the context of uh, alternatives, maybe not even to that extent. As I've pointed out before in my uh, work, uh, including um, some, some work that I've done on the BRICS, I think it's interesting to note that a lot of these institutions that are touted as being 
counter or alternatives or, or opposition uh, in nature. Uh, for example, when the New Development Bank, the BRICS New Development Bank first came on the scene, it was being touted as some sort of World Bank challenger or some sort of alternative to that uh, World Bank IMF uh, infrastructure investment system that exists. But in fact, uh, they have inked numerous deals about cooperation and in, in fact share some of the same board members. So I think behind the scenes, there's a lot of cooperation that goes on between these competing quote-unquote uh, structures, but uh, it does at least put a different face on on things and could potentially be quite different in terms of who is in the leadership position, which may be what the real jockeying for control is about. We'll have more with James Corbett right after the break. Welcome back. We're speaking with James Corbett. James, Saudi Arabia and China are entering into some kind of oil deal. Can you explain that to us? Well, they may be entering into some sort of oil deal. It remains to be seen. But as people might know, uh, Saudi Arabia has uh, announced its Vision 2030, which is its blueprint for economic and social reforms to re-energize and diversify the Saudi economy away from oil in this post-carbon era. They're going to move into a brave new future. And part of that Vision 2030 plan is to uh, start putting up shares of Aramco for uh, on, for exchange. And initially, apparently, they're going to do an IPO and um, they're going to put a total of about 5% of Aramco shares up for uh, public consumption. Next year is when this is slated to happen. So in 2018, 5% of Aramco, Saudi Aramco is going to go public. Now, Saudi Aramco has been estimated uh, valued at $2 trillion. So a 5% stake would be $100 billion IPO, by far and away the largest IPO in history dwarfing the Alibaba IPO, which was $25 billion. So a very, very significant listing that would be a very important thing for whatever exchange that ends up taking place on. And, of course, um, New York and London and Tokyo and Shanghai and Hong Kong are all at the moment lobbying and buying to be the place where this is listed. And, in fact, Trump even tweeted uh, his plea um, talking about, oh, please, please list in New York. It'll be good for, for everyone. Um, so everyone's quite interested in this, but and, uh, just last month, Reuters was reporting that an alternative idea was being floated by the Chinese state-owned oil companies, PetroChina and Sinopec, to uh, to basically outright buy that 5% stake in Saudi Aramco. Rather than having them do an IPO and list it and sell the, the, the shares on the open market, China, the, these Chinese state-owned oil companies have proposed, why don't you just sell it directly to us? Very interesting proposal, and perhaps most interesting is the fact that this proposal is at least potentially being mulled over, is being taken seriously, because that 2018 deadline or uh, self-imposed deadline for this uh, IPO is, is fast approaching, and given the craziness that's happening in Saudi Arabia right now with the the, uh, the Night of the Long Knives, the purge that's going on, the Saudi princes being arrested, and all of this uh, this, this very unstable situation taking place, coupled with low oil prices, which mean that the $2 trillion valuation on Aramco may be vastly overvalued and they may, may not be able to live up to that $100 billion IPO that people have been touting, uh, there is at least the indication that Saudi Arabia may be seriously mulling whether it might just be better in their interest to, to outright sell to China. That is potentially a very, very important thing because it would mean that Saudi Aramco would be at least partially directly owned by China, and China, the Chinese-Saudi relationship would definitely be stepping up to the fore. Very important uh, development because, of course, as people may or may not know, the 
The U.S. dollar is the petrodollar since the 1970s when Saudi Arabia made the agreement with the U.S. to denominate their oil in dollars and uh, filter those dollars back through the U.S. banking system in the form of treasury purchases. That is essentially what is backing up the world monetary system at this time, that, that decision. And the idea that Saudi Aramco might be sold or partially sold over to the Chinese directly, who are now denominating oil in yuan, and uh, the yuan is exchangeable for gold, we are seeing potentially the formation of a new monetary paradigm as we speak. So whether or not Aramco actually goes ahead with selling it to the uh, Chinese state-owned oil companies is up in the air, but if they do, that could be a potentially world-changing decision. Would Saudi Arabia depend more on China for defense, considering China has moved into Africa? Well, that's an intriguing possibility at any rate, because part of the petrodollar system was the implicit or explicit even um, uh, part on the U.S. side of that deal to provide security and uh, for Saudi Arabia, including, of course, arms sales, which has obviously uh, stepped up significantly in recent years uh, with Saudi Arabia's foreign adventurism in Yemen and elsewhere. So uh, it, Saudi Arabia has been firmly under that U.S. military umbrella for a very long time. If they do start transitioning towards a more Chinese-friendly uh, environment where they're more cooperating with China and selling their oil to China, it may indeed uh, eventuate that they do move out of that U.S. umbrella and under a Chinese umbrella. I don't think that would happen in the short term, but in the medium to long term, that is a possibility. And again, if that happened, again, that would be a fundamental change of relations. And that's, I think, partly why what is happening in Saudi Arabia right now with this uh, this uh, House of Saud cleanup or whatever is happening at the moment is so important globally. Because I think what happens in Saudi Arabia is really going to be, at the very least, a harbinger of things to come on the global, geopolitical and monetary level for the decades to come. The Saudis have now decided that women should be allowed to drive cars and they're allowed to go to sporting events for the first time. Is that kind of a public relations exercise to cover up what could be a bloody purge? I think that's exactly what this is. I think what we are seeing right now is an attempt at a rebranding of Saudi Arabia uh, from this oil-rich uh, oil nation that's oil-dependent and it's uh, about... Uh, beheadings and stoning women to death and that sort of thing is the, the kind of public face of Saudi Arabia at this point. I think part of what's happening right now is the attempt to say, look, we have this new crown prince who's this reformer and he's changing things up and look, there's this cr uh, corruption crackdown as they're attempting to frame it. Um, so I think this is all part of a rebrand that's going on. Part of that is, hey, look, we'll let women drive. Hey, look, we'll, we'll give citizenship to a robot, which just happened a couple of weeks ago at a conference about the the brave new future that they're trying to create there in Saudi Arabia that was held at the Ritz-Carlton, which is now the very place where these crown, uh, these princes are being held, uh, imprisoned, whatever they are at the moment. So, it's, again, some crazy things swirling around, and I think this is all related to this idea that they're going to try to uh, paint Crown Prince, soon to be king, question mark, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, as this, brave crusader reformer who's going to change the face of Saudi Arabia. And so I think there's definitely some PR going on at the moment. We'll have more with James Corbett right after this. Welcome back. Speaking with James Corbett. James, how is the Japanese stock market doing compared to other markets in Asia? Uh, the Japanese stock market has been doing good. In fact, not just good. It's been doing absurdly well. Uh, this is something that is 
it, it, I think, in itself worrying. And uh, uh, an indication of that comes from the, the latest headlines about the Nikkei hitting a, a high that it has not seen since 1992. It's literally hitting 25-year highs. And this is uh, at the same time that uh, we have the craziness happening in the Asia-Pacific realm generally with uh, the North Korea situation. We also have this uh, this election, re-election of, of Abe and the, the continuation of the Abenomics status quo that has failed to generate very much, if anything, in the way of actual results for the Japanese economy over the last several years. But apparently, everyone is just so happy with what is happening that... Uh, that things are going through the roof. So the uh, Jap- Japanese Nikkei index just topped 22,750, again, hitting a 25-year high, not seen since basically the end of the bubble years. Uh, that is, I, as I say, I think that's worrying um, more so than it is uplifting because one wonders what is actually supporting this. And we know that at, at this point, the Bank of Japan is essentially the largest investor, uh, the largest purchaser, single purchaser of uh, Japanese bonds, and also a large um, shareholder, essentially, in, in the largest corporations in Japan through their uh, purchases of uh, not stocks themselves, but um, ETFs. So they become, as it were, default de facto holders of Japanese shares, uh, company shares. So I think what we are seeing is essentially the buying out of the Japanese economy by the Bank of Japan. And everyone is so happy about this process, apparently that uh, things are going through the roof with the Nikkei. So it looks like good news, but I, I really do worry about what this means in the long run, especially if the Bank of Japan ever does start to back away from uh, attempting to single-handedly prop up the, the, the markets here. Uh, that could be very worrying. On the other hand, the fact that the markets are doing so well is itself kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. As profits are there to be made, then you have real investors flocking in to buy them. And that process is being helped along by these ETFs, which are allowing foreign investors who may not know much, if anything, about the Japanese economy specifically to basically buy into Japan Inc. and the promise of this uh, this bright new era of ever-increasing record highs. So that is drawing in some new investors, and there are, uh, this is part of what is inflating this Nikkei stock bubble. Anything more on the Kobe Steel scandal where they fudged their quality reports? I haven't heard the very latest. The last that I heard, um, they are going through all of this testing uh, or retesting or, or going through their records to try to figure out what companies were affected and in what way. This is partly an internal probe, but also partly government mandated at this point, obviously. So uh, this is a process that's going to take a while. Um, the very latest that I've seen just in the last couple of days, apparently uh, Toyota has been cleared after the Kobe Steel um, debacle, and they uh, have announced their own follow-up to their initial investigation as to how their parts may have been affected. But uh, apparently, early results are showing that their the materials that they were they purchased through their suppliers were not impacted by this this fudged data that uh, Kobe Steel was putting out. So Toyota apparently seems to be cleared, but uh, I think there's a number of companies that are still going through this review process. Yeah, you wonder every time you get into an airplane now, is there any Kobe steel in it? It is a worrying question, and uh, as I, I believe we talked about last time, added to that is the fact that a lot of uh, bullet train parts here in Japan also come from Kobe steel, so there's that, uh, that to worry about as well. Anything else, James, that we should be looking at in Asia? 
many things, but I think we've covered some of the most important. Obviously, I think the rest of the Trump visit, uh, which is ongoing in Asia, um, as he hits uh, South Korea and China and the APEC conference and other things, uh, obviously very important. So I think people should keep their eye on that if they're interested in in how things are unfolding in this region, um, not just geopolitically, which, of course, is all, always on the table, but also economically. Well, uh, Trump was the first foreign visitor to be allowed to have dinner in the Forbidden City. So China's taking him pretty seriously. Well, I think whining and dining is a pretty obvious way to uh, get on the in-books or the good side of uh, Trump. And after that incredible chocolate cake that he shared with Xi Jinping earlier this year, I guess they have to one-up him. Yes, but can Japan up the 360-year-old soy sauce that the South Koreans served him? Ooh, well, I, I heard a headline that, or I read a headline that apparently Trump uh, ordered a American beef burger with Heinz ketchup <laughs> when he was in Japan. So maybe he doesn't trust the Japanese food. I don't know. <laughs> doesn't like the, the old soy sauce. James, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure. My guest has been James Corbett, publisher of thecorbettreport.com. He was speaking to us from Japan. If you have any questions for the show or our guests, you can send them to info at howstreet.com. I'm Jim Goddard. Thanks for listening. Comments made on howstreet.com radio are an expression of opinion only and should not be construed in any matter whatsoever as recommendations to buy or sell any financial instrument at any time. Available online at talkdigitalnetwork.com. HowStreet.com Radio is a production of HowStreet Media Incorporated.